Welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers Uncharted 4, the most recent chapter in Naughty Dog's critically acclaimed series on fortune hunter Nathan Drake. The Uncharted series follows Nathan Drake as he searches for some of history's greatest lost cities and treasures. Previous games in the series included the search for El Dorado, Shangri-La, and Aram of the Pillars. Uncharted 4 follows Drake as he hunts for the treasure of Henry Avery and the lost pirate colony of Libertalia. I've invited Dr. Christopher Haney on the show to discuss the real history behind modern archaeology and treasure hunting. Dr. Haney is a recent PhD graduate from the University of Texas at Austin. His work focuses on the history of grave robbing and archaeology in Latin America and the United States. He is the author of Cradle of Gold, the story of Hiram Bingham, a real-life Indiana Jones, and the search for Machu Picchu. Chris is an incoming assistant professor of Latin American history at Penn State University and a fellow at the McNeil Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Bob. So, Chris, uh, Nathan Drake is often compared to Indiana Jones, uh, another famous pop culture treasure hunter. And I think most of us would assume that figures like Drake and Jones could only exist in fiction. Yet you've written a book in the past about someone who you call a real-life Indiana Jones. Could you tell us something about him? Yes. The book was about Hiram Bingham, uh, who was an explorer and historian um, trained and working at Yale University, who became enchanted by the idea of searching for what he called the last and then lost cities of the Incas, uh, the places where the Inca nobility fled after the Spanish conquest and continued to live a semi-independent um, life for about 40 years. And he was ultimately successful, but not in the way he expected. He found all the places he was looking for, but he was more enchanted by uh, the most photogenic of them, which was Machu Picchu. Um, we today know as sort of the lost city of the Incas. That was Bingham's name for it. And he was, what's notable about the way he presented it to the public was that he was the first to take a lot of photographs of it. Local Peruvians had known of it in the past. It had been on maps. Uh, the Inca nobility certainly knew about it through the early 19th century. But he was the first to go there with a Kodak camera and take photographs of it and then run those photographs in National Geographic. Uh, mm. It was the first uh, archaeology story that National Geographic ever ran. And Bingham's photographs create an indelible image of the site that I think casts a pretty long shadow over both the history of how people perceive the history of Peru, but also how people perceive archaeology and what it's all about today. I and mean, what's also interesting about uh, Hiram Bingham and the sort of, you know, the name, a real-life Indiana Jones, uh, a real-life Indiana Jones uh, gets thrown a lot, around a lot. You see articles in, say, Esquire on the top 10 real-life Indiana Joneses, because the assumption there is is Lucas and Spielberg had to base their, their character, which is so unforgettable, on somebody real. Um, mm. But, I mean, that's that's kind of a fool's errand looking for one inspiration. Uh, use another funny phrase that you can search for online is the Indiana Jones of, uh, you'll get answers like the Indiana Jones of dentistry, the Indiana Jones of nursing, the Indiana Jones of business. And it's sort of a phrase that has become shorthand for the kind of adventuring that we ima imagine Indiana Jones to do. Mm. Is there one for history yet? <laughs> the Indiana Jones of history? Uh, I think it was, well... 
you know, I'm partial because uh, I've heard about. <laughs> I do think it's Aaron Bingham, but I, the 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 connection between Bingham and Indiana Jones actually is there uh, because Spielberg and Lucas, when they were coming up with Indiana Jones's character and style, they directed um, Raiders of the Lost Arts uh, art director and costumer to look at a movie named Secret of the Incas, uh, which was made in the early 1950s and stars Charlton Heston as an American uh, treasure hunter living in Cusco um, mm. who goes to find a golden sun disc at Machu Picchu, uh, where he meets a very tall and thin and buttoned-up archaeologist that was probably based on Bingham. Uh, Hiram Bingham is sort of the great-grandfather of Indiana Jones through pop culture and and you can see some of his traits and some of the, the issues that his story evokes, like the question of who owns the past. You can see that in Indiana Jones as well. But it's more like a photocopy of a photocopy where the nuance drops out. Instead, you get the high contrast parts mm. of the story. Mm. Well, I, I suppose having a uh, an archaeologist adventurer with a whip instead of a Kodak camera makes for a better story. Right, right. <laughs> Although they did carry guns because they sort of imagined themselves as as exploring a place that that had been known to the Spanish and to uh, to local Peruvians for hundreds of years. They still thought they were going into dangerous territory. It was part of the romance of it all mm. for for Bingham, who outfitted his expeditions with Abercrombie and Fitch and huge boxes filled with with um very very fancy provisions <laughs> oh boy um well you know the uncharted games uh, they present nathan drake as a good thief uh but a thief nonetheless uh, and he's somebody that's interested in the history surrounding the treasure that he hunts uh, but he's also not going to suddenly declare that this treasure quote belongs in a museum and while this thief persona makes for a compelling video game protagonist, it also points to the real-life tension between archaeology and grave robbing. Could you give our viewers a sense of how this fine line between legitimate and illegitimate treasure hunting has been negotiated in the past? That's a fantastic question. Um, it would be hard to say that there was a division until sometime in the 19th century, mm. and when archaeology developed as a profession, and it developed some of the more um, professional norms, as in publication, as in stratigraphic excavation, which is the idea that as you dig further and deeper into the ground, um, you are going backwards in time, that uh, the stuff near the surface can be related to more recent cultures. And the deeper down you go, it's an older culture, which seems like a fairly obvious idea now but really was quite revolutionary in the 19th century mm -hmm. and it meant that people who started practicing this idea that there wasn't just one past but many pasts layering on top of each other um, those individuals who then later came to identify as archaeologists would look at the practices of other people who were digging up um, artifacts or the dead and judge them by that standard and so what used to be acceptable, which was just digging into a mound, pulling out um, artifacts that were then uh, celebrated as you know the last vestiges of some previous culture or the origins of some new one, those people were first dismissed as antiquarians, mm. you know, people who take a single piece of data or evidence or artifact and try and generalize about 
whole whole cultures from it. Whereas archaeologists in the 19th century started saying, no, you have to understand it in the context of of the times. But just looking back from the 21st century to the 19th century, a lot of those people who would have identified early on as archaeologists, you know, the, the way they were practicing, they were doing things that would never fly today. Um, and if you see their actions from the perspective of, of cultures who uh, see themselves as descended from the sort of the dead being dug up, it's easy to see how they can be understood as grave robbers as well. It's a very complicated line that archaeologists do a, a very important job in, in defending their work and sort of distinguishing it from people who would uh, dig up solely for profit. But is also problematic because uh, we know that once you dig something up, it is dug up forever, more or less. You mm. can't store the context. And so the antecedents of archaeologists in the 19th century, if we look at them through modern eyes, were doing some pretty problematic things at times. And mm. even through the eyes of their, their contemporaries. And the interesting thing about uh, Bingham uh, and his relationship to Machu Picchu was that after he... Uh, after he made it famous um, in the press, he went back to Peru to excavate it uh, with the permission of the Peruvian government at first, but also with a deal that when it was revealed to the Peruvian press, um, Peruvians got quite upset about because it gave uh, Bingham and Yale sole sort of proprietary rights to the excavation of the Peruvian past. Yale mm. essentially, well, the word they used was concession, like it was a mining concession which Yale would be the sole individuals or the sole institution able to dig in Peru and ship some of the artifacts to Yale and leave some in Peru. And at the time, the Peruvian public and intellectuals and the people who ran its own museums called foul, which quite rightly pointed out that it was giving too much control of, of Peru's past to sort of a foreign um, entity and at the time they it was characterized as great that was characterized as grave robbing they were mm -hmm. Bingham and Yale were cast as sort of the the descendants of um, the conquistadors who looted mm. the Incas the first time when we're talking about uh, archaeology and grave robbing there is a degree to which it's in the eyes of the beholder we're mm -hmm. in digging up the dead and digging up the past we can't really quite say that the dead that was something that they hoped for when they were uh, on their deathbed, imagining what their afterlives would be like. Sure. Well, this game also depicts a black market auction for stolen antiquities. And I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of how common these types of events are and what kind of danger they pose to historical preservation. I can't say if um, the kind of black market auction that you see in Uncharted 4 um, exists, where it's in a beautiful mansion with people walking around with a champagne waiting to bid on um, lost and, and stolen objects. I mean, it's very exciting and romantic, and that's an awesome sequence in the game. But uh, that sort of coming together of people bidding for something that is very clearly stolen and lacking provenance, that seems like a surefire recipe for attracting the attentions of Interpol, which I'm yes. sure tell us a lot about. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but uh, the way it's worked in the past was um, there was simply no distinction. Uh, in, in the 19, early, late 19th and early 20th century, you would have, have auctions in New York for objects that may have left 
the country, may have left, for example, Peru under with the permission of authorities, but maybe not. It wasn't even really a question. Once you get back to New York, it would have been you know, free and fair game that you could have a an auction with metal objects or ceramics or even even mummies, even the dead themselves, and um, you wouldn't really have to worry about the legality of it. Uh, starting in the early 20th century, though, you see that very firmly change. You see Peru um, instituting laws that control the export of artifacts. Other places like Mexico and Egypt doing the same. And um, you start to see, I've found letters in the archives of, of museums saying so-and-so has a collection of illegally exported artifacts. And they start using the words illegally or improperly or unofficially for mm. the first time around then, the 19-teens and 20s. And this individual is showing them in his hotel room. And so, um, and it's this amazing correspondence where you see, you know, curators going to look at things that they know shouldn't have left the country, but they have a chance to buy up and put in their museums because it did. Today, you're more likely to see one of two things. One, artifacts whose provenance has been swiped or cleared or cleaned or sort of laundered mm-hmm. its export through uh, countries like, well, once upon a time, it was certainly Germany and Switzerland, but other countries in Europe that don't have quite as strict laws about provenance or governing um, the sale and purchase of uh, antiquities. And these artifacts can sometimes get into um, the auctions of major uh, auction houses. Mm like Sotheby's or Christie's. Right. Um, but given that there's been so much attention to that over the past 20 years in particular, that is less and less the case. So you do get a lot of purchases and sales happening um, through one-to-one meetings uh, or in via the internet. I mean, this, one of the things that's been sad and fascinating coming out of, out of the Islamic State's um, involvement in the antiquities trade is that we're seeing that how flexible buyers and sellers of illegally excavated antiquities are using and other sort of online communication applications to, to sort of send each other pictures of things that have been just dug out of the ground. Yeah. It used to be Polaroids, um, uh, but send each other pictures and so much happens behind the scenes that it's hard to, you know, there's never a moment that Interpol can sort of break into the room and suddenly find everyone trying to buy the object. Um, right. They're likely to find a cache of artifacts that are in somebody's garage in, say, Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the person who owns the garage, but it's very hard for them to figure out who was planning on buying it or who was selling it. Right. Mm. Moving on a little bit to talking uh, a bit more about the historical fiction nature of the Uncharted series, I wanted to ask you about uh, the figure of Sir Francis Drake. Uh, and in the Uncharted games, Nathan Drake uh, presents himself as a direct descendant of the famous English pirate Sir Francis Drake. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about Sir Francis Drake's life and why he is such a popular figure for historical fiction. Well, Sir Francis Drake was a 16th century um, buccaneer and privateer um, who sailed with the tacit support of um, the Tudors, of specifically of Elizabeth, and her spy master, Walsingham. And what's interesting about Drake, and that I've come across in my own research, my new project looks at sort of the origins of grave robbing and grave opening in the Americas, is that um, 
Drake's initial goal, I mean, he was to come back with with gold and silver uh, looted and taken from the Spanish. But it was also to uh, contact the, what were believed, the uncontacted Indian empires of South America, the ones mm. near the Incas, but not quite the Incas, um, and sort of ally with them to fight against the Spanish. Um, and that plan failed. Um, <laughs> uh, Drake and his men came ashore a few times in Patagonia, and I believe Drake got a spear to the face pretty quickly. Mm. Um, but he did come away with uh, the gold and silver treasure from looting the, I believe it was, we know it as the Golden Hind, but there's another name for it, um, off the uh, off the Peruvian coast, and coming back with that gold and silver to, um, to England. And even in his own lifetime, Drake was mythologized for this. Mm -hmm. um, it was sort of imagined that um, he came away with even more gold and silver than he did. So that within a few years of his death in the, uh, the in the 1590s, treasure hunters were looking in his own house in London to see to look for the cache of treasure that he had sort of kept behind for himself. <laughs> um, which is, to me, like points to both the, the the romance of Drake and how he was immediately immediately became sort of a subject of fiction of the idea that there are these lost treasures of the pirates that we have to find. But it also helps us get to thinking about what treasure is as like a category mm -hmm. and what's um, both exciting and chanting, but also more than that. And, you know, when I started out, I would have said that treasure is just, you know, a, a cache of gold, silver, jewels, or maybe even artifacts, but the important part is, you know, that they're made out of some precious metal that is hidden somewhere. But it turns out that it's it's a pretty clear legal category, too, dating back to the uh, Middle Ages, um, that it, it is the wealth that has been hidden away and uh, no longer belongs to anyone. And that sounds kind of similar, but there, there's there's a distinction there that's like it's assuming that it no longer belongs to anyone. Right. And that mattered tremendously in the 16th century when first the Spanish and then the English came in contact with non-European indigenous societies um, who had cultures that would um, put up objects and artifacts and wealth for the um, to continued ownership of the dead. So treasure in some ways, if we think about the idea of treasure spreading across the world, it's sort of, it's the meeting of a couple property regimes, sort of like the European one, which says that you can't own anything after you're dead, that if something is abandoned or something is found and, and an immediate owner isn't seen, then it has to be assumed to be abandoned. Therefore, um, it has to be uh, picked up um, or it should be picked up. Whereas other cultures, like for example, in Peru, you do have the idea that you can own things after you're dead. Mm. That wealth can be placed, put in a particular place and left there and not worry about people trying to take it because you know, we live on after we die and that wealth continues to be ours or to the benefit of our, of our heirs. And so uh, there's this boom in uh, grave robbing in the Americas that happens in the 16th century um, because of the Spanish meeting sort of these Peruvian property regimes where the dead could own their wealth and that the English try and reproduce in other places. Um, and it's fascinating because if it's, it makes us really think about like, okay, when we think about uh, Sir Francis Drake's gold and silver, everything that he took from the Spanish, 
well, that gold and silver originally was indigenous Peruvian wealth, either mm. taken from graves or or dug from mines by indigenous Peruvian labor. Um, and once you start going down the rabbit hole of of what treasure was before it was treasure, things start getting really complicated as to as to as to uh, what it is we're we're so excited about when we play a game like Uncharted Four. Mm, yeah. So continued ownership after death. I mean, I would imagine some people would think, for instance, of uh, the old phrase "taking something with you to your grave." Uh, but yeah. I don't think many people would think that actually means that they would keep that object <laughs> in the grave with them forever. But uh, you know that that speaks to a lot of what you were saying with these kind of competing notions of ownership after death it's really a fascinating idea yeah and and in the case of christianity and islam it's also that's one of the reasons uh why things do get dug up is that not only can't you can't take it with you but if you do take it with you that object that's in a grave um is possibly a sacrifice to mm. to the devil or to some other idol and so the act of digging up the dead to sort of take away their objects in the 16th century was sort of, you know, a Christian imperative. And for the Spanish, they were actually inheriting that too from uh, the, the Moors and medieval Iberia beforehand, that, you know, wealth has to be owned and you can't leave it in the ground of the dead because if you do, that's uh, a sin. Hmm. Uh, well, uh, so like other games in the series, Uncharted 4 rests on kind of what you might call a conspiratorial version of history. Uh, and the characters in the game often remark to each other that, quote, you can't trust the history books or you can't trust what they tell you, especially with reference to the history of piracy or pirate treasure. And this approach to the past is common trope for historical fiction, uh, and particularly the novels of Dan Brown or the film series National Treasure. As a historian, what do you make of this notion that there's more to history than meets the eye? Does this conspiracy-laden narrative always hurt history, or is there a way that it can be useful? I think it's the gateway drug for so many of us who do history, um, that, that we're getting into the stuff that uh, was hidden from us, or that the things our teacher didn't tell us in, in high school to sort of pull from that fam famous book. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and the truth is there are plenty of things <laughs> that the history bo books have told us that we um, have reinterpreted and realized were incorrect. And sometimes there are things in the history books that turn out to be outright fabrications that sort of get edited later on. I mean, it's, it's a commonplace to note that for a long time, history was often uh, records of the deeds of famous men, usually of a particular class or ethnicity, and that... The sources that we used were representations by themselves or the people who knew them to sort of explain why they did what they did. And some of them are trustworthy and others leave out details. In the case of the Spanish conquistadors in Peru, their original accounts, the ones we used for the, the beginning of the story of that conquest, were all essentially legal documents trying to show the king of Spain that they'd done everything in their um, ability to be good um, Christian conquistadors, and also to establish Spanish dominance as quickly as possible. But then we realized that they were living for months in the houses of the Incas whom they had sp supposedly conquered, and that something was much more complicated was going on. Mm. So there are plenty of opportunities through history to sort of get into 
things that the history books don't tell you. Um, and in my own personal experience, uh, you know, with the story of Hiram Bingham in Machu Picchu, what I alluded to before was, you know, that there was this accusation that Bingham was looting like a conquistador. That was made, the accusation was made by the Peruvians who didn't like that the artifacts were going to Yale, didn't trust that they would be better taken care of there, and felt that um, the Peruvian government had sort of signed over something incredible and essential that should instead be sort of the, the, the possession of the Peruvian people. And for a long time, Yale said, oh, you know, that's just a terrible slander by the, um, the Peruvian press. Everything came to Yale above board. Yale owns all the artifacts uh, that it got from the Machu Picchu excavations. And um, the Peruvians are just, you know, this, this is sour grapes. Mm -hmm. um, but I found in the archives, you know, the agreement between Bingham and the Peruvian government that said the artifacts from Machu Picchu had to go back. At, after a certain time period, and I found requests from the Peruvian government asking very nicely for the artifacts to come back. Um, and I realized that, you know, Bingham had been able to sort of to perpetuate this idea that Yale owned the artifacts free and clear by hiding particular correspondence. Mm. Um, I also found that, you know, the gravest accusation against him, which was, oh, he was actually also looting and smuggling out of the country. And pretty much... When I started my work, all, all the archaeologists of Peru said, well, that's obviously ridiculous. That's, that's, um, uh, that's not true. That's a slander that's come up with by sort of uh, nationalists in Peru. But I found that Bingham's team did excavate things that they didn't show to the Peruvian government. And I found that those objects were sent out in luggage. And I found that Bingham had paid for for collections to be smuggled, um, mm. exported out of the country to fictitious names in New York. And uh, you only find those things, I think, one or two times in a career as a historian, uh, where you discover what is essentially the smoking gun of a story that right. changes everything. That I, Because I did find those things, I'm a little bit more forgiving of the idea that you, know, you can't trust what the history books tell you, because there are infinite details and events that happen in our past that do get lost the, the the moment that they happen because they haven't been recorded and we the history that we have is more like a continuously edited rough draft that hopefully is getting better and better and that you know it's our responsibility to to fiddle with that's our responsibility to to improve as time goes by but the, the flip side of that is that, you know, once we acknowledge that, you know, there there's it's hard to say that there is a definitive history. Once we acknowledge that, it opens the door to questioning everything. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get uh, people who don't believe the historians when they say, yes, there was a Holocaust. <laughs> right. Yes, we went to the moon. Yes, we went to the moon. Uh that flag is flapping in the background, not because it was on a soundstage, but I mean, it's really, it's a very, very fine line that we have to walk between sort of um, showing what we can question and then not letting ourselves be trapped by still new fabrications right. in the name of, of, you know, questioning everything. And, you know, the, the example that is most uh, pointed here in our conversation about, digging and, and treasure and archaeology is is shows like uh, Nazi war diggers which is a show that did not uh, originally uh, get shown in the BBC where it was commissioned because it was thought to be uh, just totally 
over the top, but it was a it was a Polish uh, antiquities guy and a British digger going around the battlefields of Europe digging up the dead um, for artifacts. And you know the promotional materials had photographs of them or images of them holding skulls and and femurs, and it was really really Jesus pretty, really pretty ghoulish. And it's been rebranded to be shown in the UK as I think battlefield recovery is what they call it rather than Nazi war diggers. But, you know, for, for all the, the ways that in this conversation I've been pointing out moments in the past where archaeologists might have been self-interested in their own ways, it is important to have that line in, in, in the present between what is an appropriate and right way to dig up and or choose not to dig up the past and what is sort of an abuse of it. Because there's this... I think the feeling behind you can't trust what the history books tell you is that, oh, and therefore um, anyone can approach these artifacts or documents and interpret them. And that we know from what happened in centuries before, that can be incredibly dangerous. Yes, absolutely. That Uh, ends up sounding extraordinarily elitist. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think think you hit the right notes there. I mean, uh, I think in general this idea of being skeptical of historical narratives being skeptical of experts uh it can be a double-edged sword you know on the one hand it can be positive in the sense that it can help us overturn uh fabrications that have been built into old narratives uh but on the other hand it can lead to you know what you uh, mentioned these kind of uh, new more dangerous uh fabrications and i think that uh it just highlights the importance of uh, doing uh, well-researched, uh, you know, work in primary documents and continuing to look at that work uh, rather than just accepting something as being understood because one historian has looked at it. Uh, so, I mean, I would say I kind of tend to look at these things as kind of a glasses half full uh, historian. So, I would say that you know these types of conspiracy theories, these types of conspiracies, tend to do more good than harm but we do have to be vigilant yeah yeah and thank goodness we have uh games like uncharted 4 where we can get our kicks out you know sure uh, and enjoy it i mean it's uh one of my favorite games when i was younger was uh indiana jones and uh is it the legend of atlantis it's it's oh, i think it's, it's the, it's fate, one of the, the fate of atlantis i think fate of atlantis from the old lucas arts studio which made so much awesome awesome stuff in this genre um but you know that's that's what fiction's for um we don't actually then have to go dig up a tomb and we shouldn't (laughs) go then dig up a tomb um in in sort of in the arizona desert um uh because of these games we can just let the games be you know our way of sort of exploring that delight at the past and that feeling of first discovery um for ourselves all right so uh, final question here this game includes a number of tombs which feature a series of elaborate puzzles and traps and these traps and tombs they can include uh water and symbol based puzzles as well as traps featuring spikes and exploding mummies uh are there any examples of traps and puzzles in actual tombs uh, yes, and that's why I don't have a left hand. Um, oh no! <laughs> no. Um, generally, 
No, not even generally. The answer is pretty much no. There are, however, many legends and stories about them of traps and puzzles. This isn't just an invention of Hollywood in the 20th century or King Solomon's Mines. H. Ryder Haggard's King uh, Solomon's Mines, I think, has a famous trap in it um, from in the 19th century. But these were things that were said about these places Sometimes even from the moment of their creation, uh, you know, you, you, we know that the ancient Egyptians uh, built dead ends and false um, passages into their uh, pyramids to sort of foil and would-be tomb robbers. We don't have any examples of traps um, in ancient, ancient Egyptian tombs, although we know that, I guess from the perspective of the uh, Egyptian workers who were sealed inside the, the, the pyramids, they might have seen it as a trap. Mm. Um, um, but, it's, you know, we don't have like pits that suddenly open up and spikes that pop out. So the example that often shows up online when this question gets asked related to the tomb of King Shi Huang, the first emperor of China, um, who had that, who's, you know, your, your viewers might know it from the terracotta warriors that were discovered in connection with his tomb. Mm. But well, at the very center of his mausoleum um, is a whole space that the archaeologists haven't dug into yet. And in the historical record, in the Chinese historical record, there are descriptions of, of traps inside the mausoleum, that there were pressure plates that fired crossbows and that there were rivers of mercury um, poisonous mercury inside. Um, and so sometimes you see online that, oh, and it's for this reason that the Chinese archaeologists haven't dug into the central mausoleum because they're afraid of the traps because the traps, of course, can still be working after 2,000 some, some odd years. The more likely explanation is that if there were these traps, and if there were, they've probably been destroyed. But... Um, or they by sort of the hand of time. It's hard to imagine any mechanism uh, surviving um, 2,000 years simply through the accumulation of dust and dirt gumming up the works more than anything else. Um, if they weren't uh, real, these traps, then they were probably created to sort of burnish the reputation of the emperor as an explanation of why you can't dig into or why you shouldn't dig into into his tomb. Right. Um, than anything else. And in, in Peru, um, there, there are stories of something called antimonio, which um, is corresponds to antimony, sort of a, a, a substance in its own right. But what it means in Peru is sort of this miasma that comes out of tombs and graves. And if you dig into this tomb or grave, it'll make you sick, um, like a curse. And what's true in that is maybe the idea that in some of these tombs, which have been sealed for so long, that air can get stale and possibly even poisonous um, through the rot of things or, or uh, chemicals um, developing that sort of could sicken people. I mean, we, d we don't really have too many examples of that. We have people, I found one American uh, tomb raider from the 19th century who died shortly after he got back to New York because he had inhaled too much mummy dust is how they described it um, <laughs> from opening the tombs and sort of getting all that grit and dirt in his lungs. But it's hard to say that that's a trap. And uh, if there's a reason why archaeologists don't dig into places like, for example, the mausoleum of the Forbidden Emperor, it's less because of their concern uh, that they might get squashed by a rock or 
um, hit by a crossbow bolt, then um, they're concerned for the the preservation of the things inside. Mm. Many of the um, the terracotta soldiers, after they dug up, um, lost some of their uh, their patina, their paint to the environment, mm. and so it's a concern for the the emperor himself that you know they don't want to dig into these um, tombs uh, because. Uh, once you do that, you can't undo it. And who knows what sort of technology we'll have in, say, 50 years that would make it not necessary to dig in in the, in the, in the more destructive way that we do now. I mean, any excavation is, by its nature, destructive. You lose all sorts of incredible details about how things were done and why that you can't get back. And and that's that's always my, my uh, challenge in playing games like Uncharted or Tomb Raider is that especially as the games get more and more beautiful it's sometimes i just sort of like like the character to stop and stand there and just <laughs> look at what he's running by and like as he's trying to get to the treasure because it's absolutely incredible i mean these are whole worlds that you can recover through archaeology and also that you know that game developers have created in games that somebody spent a lot of time making and we are rushing on to the next chapter yeah <laughs> Uh, so in general, you're saying, uh, if you go tomb raiding, maybe take your gas mask, but don't worry too much about exploding mummies. No, uh, well, actually, uh, that's not the answer I want to give <laughs> <laughs> worried. There are exploding mummies everywhere, Bob. And you just, you just have to watch your back when you go into the past, man, because one's going to get you. Okay, well, on that uh, pessimistic note, uh, that's going to do it for our episode today. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Bob. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our channel on YouTube or iTunes. And if you are feeling especially generous, please consider contributing to our Patreon at patreon.com. 